Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Cheryl Feldman, and welcome to the What Women Must Know podcast. It's great having you here once again. The show is about empowering you with truthful information so you can make the most informed decisions regarding your health and well-being. And I'm so glad you're here today because we're talking to my guest, Dr. Robert Lustig, and we're talking about his latest book, Metabolical, The Truth About Processed Food and How It Poisons People and the Planet, a really important topic. So let me just jump right in and share a little bit about my guest. Robert Lustig is an American pediatric endocrinologist. She is a professor emeritus of pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco, where he specialized in immunoendocrinology and childhood obesity. Dr. Lustig has become a leading public health authority on the impact sugar has on fueling the diabetes, obesity, and metabolic syndrome epidemics and on addressing changes in the food environment to reverse these chronic diseases. In his New York Times bestselling book, Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease, Robert documents both the science and the politics that have led to the current pandemic of obesity and chronic disease. In the Fat Chance Cookbook, Robert provides practical examples for applying healthy eating principles with recipes. And his most recent book is Metabolical, The Lure and Lies of Processed Food Nutrition. And um, I think I left the last part of that book out. <laughs> modern medicine. <laughs> and modern medicine. So, sorry about that. So, um, Look, we have so much to talk about today. It's a huge topic. I have to ask you, um, first of all, do you feel like you're uh, uh, David and Goliath fighting this battle with uh, uh, the dangerous process food? At the beginning I did, but now I feel like there's about, oh, about 100 million uh, Davids. And so we Lilliputians might actually be over, able to overcome the giant. <laughs> <laughs> That's encouraging. So I've been listening to a lot of your interviews, and they're also fascinating to me and because you have such a wealth of information. And I thought maybe we can start the conversation today talking about the role of dopamine and serotonin and the, the trans, or neurotransmitter that has to do with reward and pleasure compared to happiness. Because sure. I think that the driver of what gets people stuck into these uh, addictions that are going on with a lot of things, not just food. There are a lot of things that drive them. So um, um, can we can we explore those, um, those sure. the effects of those neurotransmitters on our choices in life and food? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in 10 words or less, what is the difference between pleasure and happiness? In my book, Hacking is the American Mind, there are seven. So, you know, let's, you know, come up with even one. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I, I would say pleasure. one is fleeting. Um, yes, pleasure, pleasure is short-lived. Right, pleasure is short-lived, like a meal. Happiness is long-lived, like a lifetime, yeah. Um, number two, pleasure is um, uh, uh, visceral. You feel it in your body. Uh, happiness is ethereal. You feel it above the neck. Number three, pleasure is taking, like from a casino. Happiness is giving, like to Habitats for Humanity. Number four, pleasure is experienced alone. 
Happiness is usually experienced in social groups. Number five, um, pleasure can be achieved with substances. Happiness cannot be achieved with substances. Number six, the extremes of pleasure, whether it be substances or behaviors. So substances like cocaine, heroin, nicotine, alcohol, sugar, or behaviors, shopping, gambling, internet gaming, social media, pornography. In the extreme, all lead to addiction. There's an aholic after every one of those. Shopaholic, sexaholic, alcoholic, chocoholic, etc. But there's no such thing as being addicted to too much happiness. And finally, number seven, and the one you're asking about, and the reason why I wrote the book in the first place, pleasure's dopamine and happiness is serotonin. Two different neurotransmitters, two different areas of the brain, two different sets of receptors, two different mechanisms of action, two different clearance mechanisms. So like, you know, like, why do we care? They both feel good. Well, turns out dopamine is excitatory. So when dopamine is released, it always excites the next neuron. Now, neurons like to be excited. That's why they have receptors anyway. But neurons like to be tickled, not bludgeoned. Neurons like to be excited and then go back to rest. Chronic overstimulation of any neuron anywhere in the brain leads to neuronal cell death. And the reason is because neurons are very energy um, uh, dependent. They use up a lot of energy when they fire. And there is no place to store energy in the brain. That's why you need a constant steady supply of glucose. If you chronically overstimulate a neuron, the ATP goes down, the chemical energy in the cell goes down, and the cell becomes at risk for dying. And we know this because of all the kids in status epilepticus in the intensive care unit where we have to stop their seizures or they will end up being, you know, severely developmentally delayed, you know, in the neuro ICU, you know, the patients I take care of as a pediatrician. So it's really important for neurons to go back to rest. Well, turns out dopamine stimulates neurons and chronic dopamine puts them at risk. Now, serotonin, on the other hand, is inhibitory. It actually puts the next neuron to rest. So any chance that the cell will die if the neuron is put to rest? No. So it turns out dopamine is potentially toxic to, to neurons over, over time. So the brain has a self-defense mechanism. It has a plan B. It downregulates the number of receptors. So what does that mean in human terms? It means you get a hit, you get a rush, receptors go down. Next time you need a bigger hit to get the same rush, and then the receptors go down, and then you need a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit until finally you need a huge hit to get nothing. That's called tolerance. And when the neurons do start to die, that's called addiction. Serotonin, because it inhibits the next neuron, doesn't have to downregulate its own receptor. So there's no such thing as overdosing on too much happiness. But there's one thing that downregulates serotonin, dopamine. So what it means is the more pleasure you seek, the less happy you get. And the book makes the argument that over the last hundred years, American business has confused and conflated these two terms, pleasure and happiness, so that we think 
they mean the same thing. And if you think they mean the same thing, then you think you can buy happiness. Well, you can buy dopamine, but you can't buy happiness. And in the process, we've all become fat, sick, stupid, and broke. Yeah, it's terrifying to see what's happening in the country and um, understanding that um, neurotransmitters, which are created from our diet, there is supplementation that's possible to get for serotonin as well. Um, but without the amino acids, the, the building block from our diet, then we're going to be suffering. And, and, and the other thing around the dopamine rush is um, – I think I have to bring in the role of blue light from computers as well, right? That has right, absolutely. dopamine. Absolutely. There are a lot of things that stimulate dopamine. So some of them are chemical and some of them are behavioral. So, you know, you, you, you hear about, you know, Silicon Valley types going on dopamine fasts where they lock themselves in a hotel room and basically don't come out for three weeks you know, and have the TV removed, you know, very specifically to give their brains a chance to repopulate those dopamine receptors so they can actually feel something. After all the cocaine they've taken. After, yeah, well, usually they're cocaine. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, but we're really talking about, um, do you think watch, watching the 6 o'clock news is a dopamine rush for people? Absolutely. Without question, without question. That's why if it bleeds, it leads. You know, this is, you know, the, the, the media companies know what hooks us, what gets our dopamine going, and uh, use it absolutely to, you know, not necessarily, they're, they're not necessarily trying to destroy us. They're just trying to increase their revenue. And control us. I mean, make us addictive. Well, yeah, it's a, right. It's addictive, and that's what I mean by raising their revenue. They know, and, and it's the same reason that the food industry puts sugar in every single uh, uh, item in the American grocery store. Seventy-three percent of the items in your grocery store have been spiked with added sugar on purpose by the food industry for their purposes, not for yours, because they know when they add it, you buy more. We actually have the data. We actually understand the economics of this. There's a term in, uh, in, in you know, consumer uh, 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 economics that you've probably heard of called price elasticity. So for your audience, price elasticity is how will consumption of a given substance change when the price goes up by 1%. Normally, when the price goes up 1%, consumption should go down. Now, if something is completely price elastic, if it goes up 1%, then consumption will go down 1%. Now, nothing's that price elastic. The most price elastic food is eggs. And they have a price elasticity mm -hmm. index of 0.32. So that means that when the price of eggs goes up 1%, Consumption of eggs goes down 0.68%. You see how that works? So yeah. the reason is because eggs are not addictive. So what is the most price inelastic food? Turns out there are three of them. Fast food, soft drinks, 
and hoops. Yeah, junk foods. And they're they're pricey like the city I mean, if you're addicted, you'll, you'll, you'll pay anything for it, right? Exactly. Exactly. You will, because you don't care about the consequences. You'll pay whatever is necessary. And so it turns out that anything that had sugar added to it is priced inelastic. And the reason is because sugar is addictive. Yeah. Yeah. So um, probably, do you think most people realize they're addicted to sugar? No. No. What they say is, oh, I have a horrible sweet tooth. Mm-hmm. That's what they say. You know, if if sugar, if if let's say cocaine were available and legal everywhere, just say, okay, good thing it's mm-hmm. not, but just say, okay, would half the people who would end up being cocaine addicts would they recognize themselves as cocaine addicts? They would say, I can't be an addict. The stuff's legal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And I could get yeah. it anywhere. And they would never know because they'd keep taking it so they'd never have withdrawal. Well, same right. thing for sure. Yeah. So so for people who aren't aware, how, how exactly is sugar addictive? What is it doing to us that makes us crave it? Crave right. sweet, <laughs> crave candy, crave right. Coca-Cola. So, what is it? So, so what we know is a couple of things. Number one, like I talked about, um, we know that there's this area of the brain called the reward center. It's got a technical name called the nucleus accumbens. And when it lights up on an MRI scanner, you know that you've achieved reward. Now, reward's necessary. If you don't have reward, you don't even get out of bed, okay? A lack of reward is tantamount to major depressive disorder where nothing feels good, and you might as well kill yourself. And in fact, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, there was a medicine um, that was used as an anti-obesity drug back in 2006 in Europe called Romanovant. It was an endocannabinoid antagonist. It was the anti-marijuana drug, the anti-munchies drug, all right? And... <laughs> It reduced weight. It reduced weight a lot, like 15 to 20% of body weight. The problem was it caused major depressive disorder, and there were 21 suicides within the first six months of its being uh, approved by the European Safety uh, Food Safety Authority. And it ultimately, it was pulled from the market, and it was never approved here in the United States. What this demonstrated was just how essential the concept of reward is for the human brain. So we need reward. And there are a lot of different ways to get it. Okay. Work can supply reward. Money can supply reward. Uh, You know, chemicals can certainly supply reward. And, you know, different behaviors like, you know, uh, gaming, um, uh, social media, pornography. Bottom line, what's happening is that that uh, nucleus accumbens is receiving this enormous amount of dopamine from an area, a different area of the brain called the ventral tegmental area. And whenever dopamine binds to its receptor, that neuron fires, and that's the feeling of reward. But what's happening in addiction is that those dopamine receptors are going down. 
In addition, there is a hormone that your fat cells make called leptin. And leptin normally turns off reward. It's one of the reasons you stop eating when you're full. But the hormone insulin blocks that leptin signaling in the brain at the level of the reward center. And so the higher your insulin goes, the less well the brain can see its leptin, and therefore the less well leptin will turn off reward. So insulin blocks the extinguishing of reward. So between the two, between the effect of sugar on the reward system directly and between the effect of insulin blocking leptin's extinction of reward indirectly, those yeah. two phenomena are driving reward in you know, ways that were unimaginable before ultra-processed food was available. And so now we have ultra-processed food addiction. And while the, uh, uh, the WHO and the American Psychiatric Association have not yet codified those terms, there is a, um, uh, a uh, uh, what's the word, uh, an effort uh, that I'm also a part of uh, to actually introduce those into the next DSM, uh, which will uh, take place uh, in the next uh, couple of years and also to get the uh, WHO to recognize ultra-processed food addiction as its own diagnostic code. So basically people are overeating. They never feel full. Well, the question is why is that? So mm -hmm. the feeling of fullness is actually accomplished in the intestine by this hormone, which you've heard of, called GLP-1. Because now all we mm -hmm. have are these GLP-1 agonists like Ozempic and Wagovi. Well, mm -hmm. it turns out in order to get those uh, hormones to go up, you have to give protein and not sugar. You have to give fat and not sugar. And mm -hmm. sugar interferes with that signaling. So the more sugar you add, the less uh, satiety you're going to experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it works. It works for the food industry at multiple levels. Problem is, it's making us sick. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about children because um, mm -hmm. you probably know this. I mean, there was a recent study or questionnaire with kids asked about their favorite foods, and they would replied with Mars bars and Coke. And people, yep. kids don't even know what food is anymore. That's right. They don't. Um, you know, uh, I, I ask uh, a question very simply. Is ultra-processed food food? Yeah. So in order to answer that question, you actually have to know the definition of food. And I do because I went to the dictionary and looked it up. The definition of food is the following. Substrate that contributes either to the growth or burning of an organism. That's a great definition. 100% agree with it. Growth or burning. So any substance that you put between your lips that contributes to growth or burning, that would be food. So the question is, is ultra-processed food food? Does it contribute to burning? Turns out 
ultra-processed food, primarily the fructose molecule, the sweet molecule in sugar, actually inhibits burning. It inhibits ATP generation. It inhibits three separate enzymes necessary for normal mitochondrial function. It inhibits AMP kinase, the fuel gauge on the um, liver cell. It uh, inhibits ACADL, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain, and it inhibits CPT1, carnitine palmitol transferase 1. All three enzymes are necessary in order to be able to burn energy to create ATP for the cell. So, in fact, ultra-processed food, and primarily sugar, inhibits burning. Okay, let's go to the next one, growth. My colleague, Dr. Efrat Monsenigo Ornan at Hebrew University, Jerusalem, she's in the Department of Nutrition there, actually looked at this question. And it turns out ultra-processed food inhibits growth. It inhibits cortical bone growth. It inhibits trabecular bone growth. It inhibits long bone growth. You can actually see it on x-ray. You can see it on quantitative CT of the bone. You can see it on, uh, uh, on microscopy. You can actually see the wasting away of the bone because of ultra-processed food consumption. And also, sugar actually hijacks cancer cell growth and makes cancer cells grow much more, much faster. So if a substance that passes your lips neither contributes to growth or burning but actually inhibits both, is it a food? Can't be. Absolutely not. So, so when, when we talk food, about ultra processed, Rob, we talk about ultra processed food. We're talking about anything that's packaged, right? I mean, just so people are well, clear, anything that they grab off the shelf. Yeah. So, so let's let's be clear about what ultra processed food is. So, real food is food that came out of the ground or animals that ate the food that came out of the ground. That's real food. Ultra processed food is anything else. If a food that you purchase at the store has a label. That means something's been done to it. Food that nothing's been done to it doesn't need a label. Is there a label on a broccoli? Is there a label on a radish? Is there even a label on a steak? No. Okay? There's a label on anything that is in a package. Now, that label tells what's in the food, it doesn't tell what's been done to the food. So that's part of the problem. All food is inherently good. It's what's been done to the food that's not. And you can't necessarily know that from looking at the label. So the label is a warning label, but unfortunately the label doesn't always tell you what the problem is. And that's part of what we need to fix and part of why people don't understand what is food and what isn't. So I'm I'm for amending the food label, and we're trying to, you know, make some headway there. But as you can imagine, the food industry is a very powerful opponent. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's really the most nefarious industry we have to destroy the health of Americans and, and people all over the, the world, to be honest. Well, you got to eat. You know, you don't you don't have to smoke, you don't have to drink alcohol, but you got to eat. So it is it is yep. pretty insidious and it is problematic to say the least. Um, you know, mm. uh, it's not and it's not that all food is bad. 
you know, I mean, here's this, uh, uh, you know, movement that, you know, I can point to and, and, and I support in, in principle called food is medicine, you know, that they're actually talking about, you know, paying for uh, food, you know, that insurers should pay for food instead of for medicine uh, because food is better than medicine at fixing your diseases. And that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But only real food is. So the question is, how does the insurer know what you're eating? When 40% of SNAP purchases are for soft drinks, do you think mm-hmm. that that's a good thing for the federal government to be subsidizing? I don't think so, you know, since that's what's causing all the diabetes and the heart disease and the cancer and the dementia that they're ultimately paying for twice. They're paying for the subsidy and then they're paying for the health care costs. You know, that's kind of ridiculous. So we have a lot of work to do in educating not just the consumer, but in fact the government and the politicians as to what it is that they should be doing. Food can be medicine. Food can also be poison. What do you think the best way is to help people when they receive this information to withdraw from their addictions that are stimulating the dopamine response? Right. right. Is it just information? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I'm going to tell you that I don't think there's one answer to that question. I think there are multiple answers. And ultimately, each, you know, person is going to be different in terms of what will work for them. The one thing I will say categorically is that education alone has never solved any substance of abuse. Did Nancy Reagan's just say no work? We have an opioid crisis. Okay. Point is, education is necessary, but not sufficient. You can't educate people out of addiction without education, (laughs) but you need more than just education, all right? And the reason is because the biochemical drive to consume is greater than your cognitive inhibition of, of its use. That's just the nature of addiction. That's why it's addictive, because you can know in your heart of hearts that whatever it is you're addicted to is ruining your health, your economy, your family, your community, and you're powerless to do anything about it because the drive to consume is so great. So you have to educate, like, for instance, we just talked about whether or not people knew that, know they're sugar addicted. They just know they have a horrible sweet tooth. They don't know that that's sugar addiction until proven otherwise. Do they need to know? Of course they need to know. But will that stop them? No. Not that I know of. So mm-hmm. we need policies put in place to actually assist people. And we've done that for tobacco. So, for instance, cigarette taxes and, you know, uh, cessation of smoking in public places and, um, you know, in certain places, you uh, in certain, with certain insurers, you have to pay extra if you're a smoker, you know, in an attempt to try to, you know, uh, uh, coerce you or uh, persuade you to think otherwise about it. For alcohol, you know, we have drunk driving, and we even have now laws uh, to prevent bartenders from over-serving people who are drunk, right? If, 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 a, if a customer, you know, leaves a bar, uh, you know, drunk, and then 
you know, gets in a car accident or kills somebody in a car, the bartender is culpable. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a an impetus for the bartender not to let that happen now. So all of these things can be done. All these public health efforts can be put into place to try to assist. But in no case can education alone solve the problem. And do the school food programs um, serve ultra-processed food? Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a very simple question. What is the largest food fast food franchise in America? Yeah, no, McDonald's. No. Try no. again. Try again. Uh, uh, um, I don't know. Have, um, Hungry Jacks. <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> Hungry Jacks. I, I haven't had fast food in a really long time, Rob. <laughs> Public schools. Oh, public schools, schools is the it. largest fast food franchise in America, by far and away. If you took all wow. of the top ten fast food franchises and added them up, it wouldn't even come close to American public wow. schools. Wow. All right? Wow. It, it, so, right. So we, wow. we have to fix that. Now, I, I will tell you, I am the uh, chief science officer and co-founder of a nonprofit here in the Bay Area, called Eat Real, Mm -hmm. and you can find it online, Mm -hmm. eatreal.org. And what we Mm -hmm. do is we have developed a business model that actually uh, districts, school districts around the country, food service directors in school districts can adopt with our help to be able to actually bring real food into K-12 throughout the entire country and save money doing it. Mm-hmm. Amazingly, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there, you know, there are very specific things that have to be done, and there are specific benchmarks that have to be met, and there are, you know, certain um, uh, criteria that have to be uh, 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 allowed for. So it's not like you just do it, but um, we can help virtually any school district in the United States turn away from processed food and toward real food. And the ones that have, and we currently have 514 schools in 27 districts in six states, um, the ones that have, have actually saved money and and improved grades. Oh, absolutely. Do you remember, um, I read about Appleton, Wisconsin School. You probably know about that story, right? Yes. Um, That was so inspiring. Um, And, um, do you want to just share a little bit what happened in Appleton, what they did with with those um, violent kids, the kids who were really sent there to the school because they were uncontrollable? Right. Well, so they basically fed them real food instead of processed food, and their violent behaviors went down. We know this through two other studies. Um, this happened in Israel uh, several years ago, uh, back in 2013. Um, there was a uh, high school in Ramallah in the West Bank, and it had a 27% graduation rate. And it was incorrigible, and basically every kid who didn't graduate became a terrorist. And Israel did not know what to do. And an enterprising Israeli entrepreneur, very famous guy, very rich guy named Yossi Vardi, went to the uh, – uh, went to the prime minister's office and said, give me this school. I'll turn it around. 
And Israel said, sure, <laughs> you know, take it, do, do whatever you want yeah. with it. And, you know, did he fire anybody? No. Did he change the curriculum? No. He didn't do any of those things. You know what he did? He fed the kids. Yeah. He fed the kids yeah. breakfast. And in two years, that school went from a 27% graduation rate to a 95% graduation rate. Yeah. That's, that's so profound. Yeah. That's so profound. Another, guy, all. another guy named Bernard Gesch. Uh, he's a British uh, researcher, uh, clinical researcher. It took him 35 years to do this study. 35 years. Okay, one study. That's all Bernard is known for is this one study. But it's a hell of a study. He got the British government to allow him to do a double-blind placebo-controlled trial of a multivitamin supplement in British prisons. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And it turned out that the uh, inmates who were on the multivitamin supplement over the course of one year reduced their violent behavior in prison by 42%. Yeah. 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 It's, it's so profound. Nutrition, yeah, nutrition medicine. And I think those kids in uh, Appleton um, w- went on and really achieved some high academic scores as well. Um, okay, you have to feed the brain. Yeah, you have to. So we, I, I will tell you that uh, my colleagues and I have, you know, been working for the last three years with a an offshore food company, okay, uh, in the Middle East. This is like the Nestle of the Middle East. It's called Kuwaiti Danish Dairy Company, KDD. And they make all sorts of crap. They make frozen yogurts, flavored milks, ice cream, confectionery, tomato sauce, uh, biscuits, etc. Okay? All bad stuff. All right? And, of course, Kuwait has an 80% obesity rate and an 18% diabetes rate. And it's obviously it's not KDD's fault alone. But, you know, mm-hmm. nonetheless, they're not helping the matter. They came to me three years ago and said they want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. They want to become a metabolically healthy company, and would I help them to do so? And so uh, colleagues of mine, we've formed a scientific advisory team, and we've been working for the last three years to re-engineer KDD's complete portfolio of 180 items to become metabolically healthy. We analyzed what was in the food. We sent it for chemical analysis. We got all of the spec sheets from all of their vendors. We uh, looked at the ingredients. We looked at the products. <clears throat> we developed a tiers system for how to elevate any given product from tier three, which is conventional and dangerous, to tier one, which would be metabolically healthy. Um, and uh, implemented those things, and now 10% of their portfolio has turned around. And guess what? No loss in revenue. And no. you know what the key was? You know what the key was? <laughs> no. They didn't tell the public. Right. <laughs> they <laughs> they secret. did it. Trade secret. They just <laughs> did it. Because if they told so, the public, ha- ha- hey, this is now ha- healthy, they'd say, oh, it tastes terrible. Even when it doesn't. Yeah, that right. Is, I mean, that is the 
This must have. Is this like all your? Uh, was this like all your dreams came true to be approached by a, a major manufacturer like that to change and transform their foods? Well, no, I wouldn't say it was my dreams come true. It was a hell of a lot of work. But what it says is that the food industry knows it has a problem. That's yeah. what it says. It, they know. And to be honest with you, they've told me they know. All right? They, won't, they would never say it out loud. They would never say it in public. But they know they have a problem, and they're looking for a solution. Well, we have provided one. So we published uh-huh. a paper in Frontiers in Nutrition in March of this year called The Metabolic Matrix, Reengineering Ultra-Processed Food to Protect the Liver, Feed the Gut, and Support the Brain. Mm-hmm. Those are the three linchpins in turning poison food into healthy food. Protect the liver, feed the gut, support the brain. Any food that does all three is healthy. Any food mm-hmm. that does none of the three is poison. And any food that does one or two but not all three is going to be somewhere in the middle. So the question is, can we use that criteria, can we use that setup to actually monitor what's happening here in the U.S.? And the answer is we could, but the USDA and the FDA are still on calories. Yeah. Did you change have, ingredients? In, in oh, yeah. For that? Oh, yeah. We absolutely did. We, we recommended the discontinuation of several ingredients. Uh, we lowered their sugar portfolio, uh, their sugar footprint by 78%. We're, we're getting rid of the emulsifiers. Um, no, we're doing. Uh, we're getting rid of all the uh, uh, food dyes uh, in order to create metabolically healthy products, and it can be done. Now you have to know what you're doing. It's not like it just happens on its own, but it can be done. And so, you know, this company wants to be part of the solution, and we are more than happy to help them. Yeah. Very exciting to see uh, a major corporation like that um, come to the party. Yeah, good for them, right? Without any drop in revenue. Mm -hmm. That's the plan. Yeah, yeah, the path is there. So, um, you know, I I, I know you're going to be leaving us soon, but what's the most powerful message you want to leave my audience with today? Uh, you know, and, and what kind of changes do you think people need to be incorporating into their life? Uh, you know, the most the most important thing people need to understand is that you can't fix a problem if you don't know what the problem is. For 50 years, we thought the problem was calories and fat. Mm-hmm. Well, we tried to fix the calories. We tried to fix the fat. We made a whole bunch of low-calorie, low-fat items, and all we did was make things worse. And the reason was because that wasn't the problem. We were told it was the problem. That wasn't the problem. Right? Now, there are a whole bunch of reasons why we were told that wasn't the problem, and some of them involved sabotage and subterfuge. And, you know, I write about this in my book, Metabolical. My colleagues, uh, Laura Schmidt, uh, 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 Kristen Carnes, and Stan Glantz have written several papers about finding the paper trail of the sugar industry influencing the U.S. Department of Agriculture 
and the American Heart Association and the American Diabetes Association, et cetera, to basically try to um, discount sugar as a, you know, um, a mitochondrial toxin. And so mm-hmm. we now know the real story. And so we are doing mm-hmm. our best to try to, you know, shall we say, you know, right the ship. But I will tell you, you know, the food industry dies hard. You know, they're, they're, they're putting up a lot of, lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, um, roadblocks and blockades. Now, like I said, they know they have a problem. But because they haven't yet figured out what to do about it, they continue to be obstructive. Uh, we're doing our best to try to, you know, tear that down. It, and people need to understand that everything that they've learned about nutrition in the last 50 years, which is basically nothing, but anything they did learn, what came from the food industry, it has to be basically thrown in the circular file. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that famous pyramid. <laughs> yeah, pyramid. Like, the fa- like the famous pyramid. <laughs> yeah, the pyramid was sort of the, the ultimate disaster, yes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Indeed. So, real food is the answer. Real veggies, real protein, um, real healthy fats. Um, a lot of um, um, healthy omega threes from seafood. Real seafood. Yep. You exactly. Know. Yeah. You know. That's the I mean, point. it's such a big. You know, it's you know this this issue this problem is so huge because it's undermining the health of Americans and uh, I mean I I have relatives who've had diabetes and I've seen their continuous amputations and going blind right it's a horrible thing and uh, the cancer uh, cardiovascular disease and compromised immunity so it's a big it's a, it's a big wake up call and all the uh, all the um, um, neurological problems that are going on with people, depression, anxiety. It's all related to the food, processed food we're talking about, the ultra-processed food. So, um, you know, um, you know, you, you, you have been unrelenting <laughs> in this goal of education and waking up people. You know, it's, it's the greatest uh, passion in your life, and you've done such Great work, Rob. I'm so pleased Hi. that you were able to spend some time with us today. I know you're really busy, and um, uh, I think everybody really needs to get this information. Metabolical, um, the truth about processed food and how it poisons people on the planet by um, our guest, Dr. Robert Lutzig. Please go to his website, which is robertlutzig.com, to learn more. Thanks, Rob. Um, all the best. All my, all my best to you down under. Good luck. Thank you. We have the same problem here. (laughs) Indeed you do. Okay. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye for now. Okay. So I want to thank everyone for listening in and um, uh, Rob had to head off. And uh, uh, hopefully this will really inspire you to make the changes you need to make to feel better, to think clear, and to support your healing journey. And um, that the health of your children. So until next time, um, please join me every Thursday at 4 p.m. on What Women Must Know. And uh, as always, honor the wisdom of the feminine self. Bye for now.